If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, if you're new with us, the way we do our teaching portion of the, of the um, service every week is that we go straight through books of the Bible. Um, we, uh, a couple times we'll break and do a couple topics we talk about, but for the most part, we try to let uh, the Lord set the curriculum by opening up his word, which is the Bible, and, and teaching through it. And if, if you're not really familiar with the Bible yet, you might think that it's a book that helps us escape reality. That it's kind of like going to a children's movie where you you go to the movie and there's some great characters and some great adventures, but you know that's not all real. And it's just a way to get away for a couple hours and and enjoy something that's not the real world, get your mind off what's real, and then you squint your eyes, walk back out into the daylight, and you're back out in the real world. And sometimes we can look at the Bible and think that that's what it is. That it's a book about a sky fairy who comes to help us. And it's a nice thought and it, and it makes us happy in the moment, but it's not real and doesn't affect the real world. And the Bible doesn't deal with the questions of the real world. In fact, sometimes you can look at Christianity from the outside and there are plenty of people who say Christianity is really just a drug. That it's, uh, it's something that we use to numb ourselves to the reality, but never deal with the underlying brokenness. It makes us feel a little bit better about life as we go, but ultimately doesn't deal with the pain, doesn't deal with the hurts, doesn't deal with with what's really bugging us. It just masks it all over by telling some nice stories and by throwing some fantasy at us. But then you read the Bible. And when you read the Bible, you see that this is a book that doesn't just mask reality, doesn't just numb us to the pain. It's a book that paints, paints an accurate picture of life. It's raw. It's real. It doesn't pull punches. And in fact, this book of Ecclesiastes, where we are, Solomon gets in and he asks some hard questions in some hard ways that really deal with the real world. Now, the Bible does give the ultimate answer for those questions. It does lead us to the greatest news ever told. It leads us to the story of Jesus as the answer for those real world problems. But it's a real answer for a real world. It's not glossing over uh, what's really out there. The Bible's not a fantasy book that helps us escape reality. It's a book that shows us how reality can be dealt with. And in this book of Ecclesiastes, you see Solomon who steps into the role of a skeptic. He steps into the role of someone who doesn't believe in God and pushes God out of his mind for a season of his life and says, I'm going to survey the entire creation. I'm going to look at the world under the sun. I'm going to find out what's out there. Where's their meaning? Where's their life? Where can I find that one thing that's worth living for? Where can I find that thing that will fulfill me? And he does all that with abandon. He, He goes full throttle and tries everything the world has to offer, looking for life and pleasure and meaning. And then he comes and makes a report to us that's been preserved for nearly 3,000 years so that we could hear where life is not and ultimately so we could find where it is. So so let's pray and jump in. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak the truth. Lord, you speak truths that are hard to hear. You speak truths we'd rather not hear, truths we'd rather run away from, things we would rather, rather ignore, but you speak them for our good. Uh, Lord, you wound so that you can heal us, you empty so that you can fill us. And Lord, as we go through this book that empties us of many of the dreams that we pursue, I pray that that would lead us to pursue Jesus and find real life meaning and hope in him. Uh, so Lord, as we, as we walk through this dark passage, I pray that we'd see the light of your son, and I pray that the emptiness wouldn't leave us in despair, but would lead us to Jesus, where you find joy and hope and eternal life. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Solomon is trying the world. He's trying everything to see what will satisfy him. And he recognizes that he is in a unique position. Um, He's a king, so he's got money. In fact, more money than anyone who had ever come before him. He's got influence. He has power. He has time on his hands. And this is something that not everybody has. 
In fact, in their day, you know, poor people didn't have time to pursue the meaning of life. I mean, they went out and worked. They worked all day long just to keep a roof overhead and food on their plates. And just like if you've ever known somebody today who's, who's the salt of the earth, farmer type, who just goes out, works real hard, provides for his family, a lot of times those aren't the kind of people where in the middle of the workday you can say, hey, you want to sit down and talk about the meaning of life? A lot of times they'll say, why don't you grab a shovel? Um, why, why don't you help me get the real work done? And Solomon recognized that he was in this unique position where he didn't have to work all the time. He had money and opportunity and power. He had a chance to explore everything the world has to offer, to explore it to its extreme and make a report to us about what's out there. And he recognized that nobody who came before him had the same opportunity that he had, and everybody who came after him would never have that same opportunity. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So he said, I've got this opportunity to do something that's never been done before, and I'm going to try everything out. And we saw last week that the first thing he really tried was hedonism. He tried seeking pleasure and thrills where he could stimulate all of his senses and get everything that we think, if I had that thing, it would make me happy. He tried it all, and he came back saying the whole thing was empty. Everything that we can do, he did bigger, he did stronger, he did in a more elaborate way, and came back saying, at the end of that road, there was nothing for me. We think that maybe I can find life in a thrill in the party, and we can throw a great party, but the parties that we throw are nothing like the parties that Solomon threw. I mean, he had 15,000 people just to staff it, and meat galore, and bands playing out on the patio, everybody there, everybody celebrating, everybody impressed. He's holding this party at a house that took him 14 years to build, and he says, I had all of that. I had a party beyond any party that you'll ever experience, and it just wasn't enough. And the message of this book is that we'll never be able to outdo him. You can't out-Solomon Solomon. Uh, you, you won't be able to build a bigger house than he had. You'll never have more money than he had. You'll never have more opportunities for thrills and pleasures. You'll never have more food. You'll never have more sex. You'll never be more academically gifted than Solomon. He tried everything, and his report is, there's nothing out there, and if you keep running after it, it'll crush you. You can live this life where you chase after life just under the sun, pushing God out of your reality, and you may fulfill some of your dreams but you'll find that you're still unfulfilled. Or you chase those dreams and you never fulfill them and you feel like you missed out and the reason you missed out was because you didn't have them. And Solomon had them, he tried them, and he said, it's not enough. Now, there are plenty of people who try to live like Solomon, who try to push God out of the picture, who try not to answer those nagging doubts and those nagging questions that come when they wonder, "Is is there really more to life than this? But what Solomon refused to do was ignore those questions. I mean, sometimes when we push God out of our lives, even as Christians for a season where we say, I'm going to live my way, I'm not going to live his way, when we do that, fairly often we try to ignore the nagging of our conscience. We try to ignore the doubts, we try to ignore those deep down questions where our hearts are saying, there's got to be more, this can't be all there is. We try to let those be like that email that you don't want to deal with that comes in your inbox and you just kind of let it get buried under a bunch of emails and a bunch of time and then eventually it's not on that front page anymore and so you just kind of hope it goes away. And we'll do that with those nagging doubts and those nagging questions. But Solomon said, listen, I'll try everything this world has to offer, but I'm going to address those doubts. I'm going to address those questions. I'm going into life with eyes wide open. 
And so he says he tries wisdom and he tries folly and the whole way he's examining his life because he wants to broadly be wise about this whole thing. He wants to really find where real life is. So in verse 13, he says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he said, when I went out and tested everything in the world, I recognized that it's better to be wise. It's better to examine this life. It's better to ask those hard questions. It's better to figure out what right living is and live the right way. He says, I tried folly. I tried the craziness. I tried the frat party. And I found a better way, which is wisdom. Living righteously, doing what's right, studying the world, and then living accordingly. And this makes sense. I mean, if you are a safe and careful driver, there's a good chance that life's going to go better for you. You won't get in as many accidents. You won't be as hurt. And if you eat right, there's a good chance that you're going to be healthier and you could live longer. Um, you won't be sick all the time. Uh, it's better to be wise. There, there are better results. So just do enough good in the world. Keep your nose clean. Be a family man. Be the kind of neighbor that everybody wants to have. Pay your bills. Pay your taxes. Be a good guy. Um, be just this fine, upstanding citizen. And in the few years that you do have of life, it will go better. So it sounds for a second like Solomon is onto something. It sounds like he's figuring it out. It, it sounds like, okay, I figured out if I just live wisely, that makes life more meaningful. But then he keeps going in verse 14. He says, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So he says, yeah, life seems to go better if you're wise. He goes, but bad things happen to wise people. I mean, tornadoes rip through a neighborhood and they don't just take out the fools. They, they take out everybody. They, they don't discriminate. And so it's not like being wise pays off when the tornado comes through. Uh, when the layoffs come at your company, there are foolish people who don't work hard that are laid off. And there are hard workers who have been vital to that company who get laid off. So it doesn't seem like the wisdom pays. People can go and drive safely, but there are still drunk drivers who cross the line and hit them. Um, people can be meticulous about their diet and about exercise, but they still get hit by buses. <laughs> and so, so he says, what, I, I, I try to live wise and I try to live right, but ultimately the same thing that happens to the wise person happens to the fool. So why waste the effort? Why make all these investments in living the right way? There's very little meaning to be found just in living right. So after trying the frat party, he comes back and tries living right. And he goes, ultimately, I can't say that things end up that much better for you because bad things happen to wise people and to fools. And you say, yeah, but I mean, isn't it at least worth it? For 40, 50 years, you live wisely, your life goes better. He says, if you fast forward far enough, the same thing happens to everybody. Verse 16, he says, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So think of the people that you think are the most ridiculous, foolish people in the world. You know, reality TV stars. Um, the, the, those people that you see driving and in your head you're thinking about how foolish they are. Uh, people who watch Glee. You've got these people who are out there and you say, I mean, things are going to go better for me because I'm wise. And Solomon said, well, here's the thing. You can look down on all these people and live this I'm so much better than you life, but ultimately if you fast forward far enough, Wise people die and fools die. 
So you can be so smart and so wise, and you can read all the classics, but 100 years from now, you're going to be laying in the same kind of grave that someone who only reads The Inquirer is laying in. And so really, how does that wisdom pay off? And he says, regardless of how you lived, you're going to end up dead. And so all the effort that you put into acquiring wisdom and living accordingly, it's all really not worth it. Now, this is discouraging because this is the guy who wrote wisdom. I mean, part of our Bible is the wisdom that Solomon wrote. The Proverbs have been preserved for us for nearly 3,000 years because they're so wise. And most of them were written by King Solomon. And he's looking at his life work, which is to figure out what wisdom is and pass it on to other people. He looks at all that and he says, even that doesn't have meaning. I mean, this would be like the, the founder of CrossFit coming out saying, you know, it just doesn't really matter if you exercise. That's your life work. Like, that's what you're all about. How could you renounce that? And it almost seems like Solomon is renouncing what he's lived for. And so now he's in this place where he's in despair. Look at verse 17. He says, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. So he got to a place where he even hated his life. Now, this is the low point of this book. So it's going to get better. <laughs> I know this is, is dark and discouraging. And in weeks ahead, Solomon's going to get some fresh air. He's going to get some exercise. He's going to be in a better mood. We're going to hear some more optimistic things. But right now, he tests out everything the world has to offer, from wisdom to folly. And he says, across the board, there's no purpose. There's no point. And when there's no purpose and there's no point, that's when we give up. Now, there's an awful lot that God has made the human spirit able to endure when there's a purpose. You can endure a nine-month pregnancy, even a hard one, because you know a baby is coming. You can endure that labor and delivery because there's a purpose behind it. There's a baby coming at the end of this whole thing. You can endure a lot of years of school if you know there's a good career and a good future that's coming at the end. You can endure that rough year on the job if you know that you can get a raise or if you know that that job is going to be important and contribute to the world. If there's purpose, we can keep going. Solomon examined everything, and he said, it's like there is no purpose. And it says that he's ready to quit. He's despairing even of life itself. And there can be seasons in our life when we look just at life under the sun we don't look up to God. We don't look at eternal things. We just look at the world around us and the efforts that we're making, and we can feel a despair that's pretty similar to Solomon's. You're raising little kids, and you labor and toil and pour yourself into them, and you're not seeing the progress in their lives. You're not seeing them love Jesus yet. You're not seeing them obey yet, and you just work and work and work at it, and you're exhausting yourselves. And it's easy to say it's not worth the investment because I don't see this going anywhere. Or you go to your job day after day and you're sitting in the cubicle, time is passing you by, the years are passing you by, you don't feel like you're producing anything, you don't feel like you're doing anything, you don't feel like it has meaning, and there's that temptation to just quit and walk away and stop trying. You can work so hard at church life to come and to serve and to want to see kids blessed and to want to, to plant churches around the region and to serve and work hard, but then you don't see the region changing as much as you want it to, you don't see the purpose, so you quit. Or you, you get up and you read your Bible and you're praying and you're hoping that'll change your life. You're hoping you'll be a different person, but you look at yourself and over the weeks and months, it doesn't seem like you're changing that much. And it's easy when you don't sense the purpose to despair like Solomon did and walk away. And so he tries everything out and he says, what's the point? He says, I'm walking away from all of it because the final outcome is going to be the same. I'm just going to be dead anyway. So Solomon needs a hug. 
Um, he, he needs some, some kind of encouragement. He needs something big. And remember, the reason that he's in such despair here is because on this leg of his journey, he's not looking to God yet. He, he's not lifting his eyes. He's only surveying life under the sun. He's pushed God out of the picture for a time. And because he's not, and he's just accurately surveying what the world will be like without him, he finds just despair. What's interesting is a lot of people think that the world would be a better place if everybody just lived like there was no God. That if we just push God's reality out of everything, I mean, John Lennon told us to live this way. Imagine that there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And his point is, man, if there were no God, if, if all this stuff weren't true, then we could just be happy. We'd have this brotherhood of man. We'd have this utopia. If we just push this idea of the afterlife away, and if we just live for today. And Solomon, way ahead of his time, said, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that full throttle. I'm going to live for today. I'm going to live like there is no God. I'm going to imagine there's no heaven, no hell. I'm just going to go for, for everything this world has to offer. And where he ends is despair. It's not peace and a utopia. It's pain. And he says, you can try to make some improvements in your life, and you can make some minor improvements, but really, they're the equivalent of finding the most comfortable chair on the Titanic. Because... <laughs> The whole thing's going down. It's all going to end badly. So we read that, and it's depressing. But here's the good news. We believe in Jesus. Um, If you want to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, I don't want to paint a false picture of Christianity where it sounds like Christians never find themselves depressed, where it sounds like Christians never despair, or where Christians never look at life just under the sun, because we do. Uh, We'll have dark times. We'll have those times of depression and purposelessness and meaninglessness. We don't see where it's all going. We don't see why we try. But as Christians, there's something so important that we believe that changes all of that. Uh, Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. The Apostle Paul has been spreading the gospel. And this is a guy who knew Jesus Christ. He met him face to face absolutely believed in the resurrection of Jesus, devoted himself to being a missionary, spreading the gospel all over the world, worked hard, and this is where he found himself. He said, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So here Paul's talking just like Solomon was. He says we were burdened, We were crushed by the weight. It was so hard to live for Christ on this mission that he called us to that we despaired of life itself too. But, verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul says he felt despair He felt that pain, he felt that sense of purposelessness, but then he lifted his eyes and he said, even that pain has a purpose. It was put there by God and it was put there so that we would trust in God and make God ultimate in our lives. So if you wonder, why is it that I feel like my heart can never be satisfied with anything I get in this world, with any experience I have? Why is it that even living right doesn't seem fulfilling, doesn't seem to make me happy? The reason is because what God is doing in all of our hearts, what he's trying to to make happen in all of our lives, is that we would make Jesus Christ ultimate, and that we would make Jesus Christ our trust and our hope. Not the thrills that we can get from pleasure-seeking, and not the sense of righteousness we can get from wise living, but Jesus. 
And this is really at the heart of our message. A lot of people think that Christianity is the message that, listen, you've been doing bad things. You've been living Solomon's life in the frat party, and that's bad. So turn from all that and start doing good things. That becoming a Christian is basically turning over a new leaf, and in all the ways that you were bad before, now you start behaving. Now, coming to Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him does change us. It does make us different. It does create a morality in our lives. But the heart of the Christian message is not stop doing bad things, start doing good things. The heart of the Christian message is trust in God who raises the dead. Trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is what we're all about, not right living. So so when Solomon goes out and he tries the crazy living and he finds it doesn't satisfy, he doesn't say, I found this ultimately satisfying way to live by doing right and being wise. He said, even that left me in despair. And the reason for all of that is so that we would recognize that Christianity really is a third way. It's not anything goes, it's not rules in religion, but it's trusting in Jesus Christ. And he changes us and calls us to live differently, but our living differently is the fruit of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not what makes us Christians. So God doesn't want you to be satisfied with pleasure in this world because your heart was made to be satisfied only with Christ. God doesn't want you to be satisfied with your upright living because you recognize that you haven't been upright enough, you haven't measured up enough, and you need Jesus. He's the one who's ultimate. He's the one we need. He's the answer to all the questions that are posed by this book of Ecclesiastes. So we read through this book, and it is dark, and Solomon is in despair because he thinks that death is going to be the end. But Christianity gives the answer for death. There are times that God shakes our lives so that we let go of everything but him. There are times that he empties our lives and allows us to experience that total lack of fulfillment so that we won't just stop where we are, but so we'll trust in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, uh, talking about the law of God, he said, it empties that grace may fill, and it wounds that mercy may heal. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book that empties us. It empties us of a lot of our pursuits, a lot of our dreams, a lot of our hopes, but it doesn't do it just to leave us there. It does it so that we can recognize that the one that our dreams are really about is Christ. The one that our hopes are really about is Christ. That seeking for pleasure, that that journey to find what's ultimately pleasurable that we're all on isn't meant to be satisfied here in the world. It's meant to be satisfied in Christ. And what you're really looking for, whether it's in sin or in right living, is Jesus. What your heart desperately needs deep down below all of that is Jesus Christ. And fairly often, we won't admit that it's Jesus that we're looking for but it's the satisfaction that's to be had in him that we're all after, no matter what we're doing. And the message of the Bible is nothing else will satisfy, nothing else will be enough, but Jesus will be enough. And we'll try smaller versions of Solomon's life. We'll try to ignore all those doubts and ignore all those questions just by partying it up, or we'll try to think we can solve those and fix those just by living the right way, but either one of those categories are going to leave us depressed. They're going to let us down. We're going to feel like it's not enough. And that's because we desperately need Jesus Christ. And now in John chapter 11, if you want to turn there, Jesus comes and steps into Solomon's world. He steps into this world of despair and he's here at a moment when his good friend Lazarus has died. So, so far it looks like what Solomon was saying is absolutely true. And that's the whole story. Lazarus was a wise man. And here's this wise man laying in a tomb. He's dead just like fools were. 
And so Jesus' good friend is dead in the tomb. People are mourning and wailing. They're despairing of life. They're feeling like Solomon felt. And then Jesus steps in in chapter 11, verse 23, and he talks to Lazarus' sister. It says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now that is a big deal. That actually short circuits the whole problem that Solomon was talking about. What led Solomon to despair is we're all just going to die and that's going to be the end. No matter how wise you are or if you're a fool, you're just going to be in a grave 100 years from now turning into dust so it doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter how much your credit cards accumulated. It doesn't matter if you treated people well. It doesn't matter if you slept around because you're just going to die and that's going to be the end. But Jesus stepped in and he said, Lazarus is going to rise. Death won't be the end for Lazarus. That won't be all that there is. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Jesus steps into this world of death and despair, and he says, there's another way. This isn't the only outcome. This isn't where everything ends. And he says, Lazarus is going to rise, and the whole problem that Solomon experienced got short-circuited. And if you look down at verse 34, it says, and he says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. One part of the solution for our despair that we do go through, even as Christians, is to recognize that we don't have a God who's disconnected from this whole thing. It's easy to despair and we say, yeah, it's easy for God to tell me to be happy and be joyful, but look at him. I mean, he's sitting up on his throne. The Bible says God's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. Well, Christianity says he, he does because he lived it. That Jesus Christ was here. As Christians, we don't believe that Jesus just came as a phantom. We don't believe he was just like a hologram from heaven coming and walking around looking like he was here, but he was here. He was really born. He lived a real human life, and he experienced all the same temptation and all the same despair that we experience. So one thing that we can never say about God if we believe in the message of the gospel is that he doesn't know what we're going through. He knows it. He felt it, and he felt it enough to break down weeping when he saw that his son had died. So God doesn't just sit in heaven and spout off theories for us to believe so we'll be happy. He came, he lived, he experienced everything we, went through, we go through, and he wept over death. So if you're here and you're on that edge of despair and you're saying God doesn't understand, he doesn't know it, he doesn't know what I'm going through, he went through all of it. He's been there. Verse 37. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Look how real the Bible is. I mean, he steps into this real, stinking world of death and despair. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So while it's true that the wise and the fool all die, as Christians, we have a God who raises the dead. We have a God who says that death is not the end. We have a God who came and lived this life, but then conquered death. So the problem that left Solomon in despair was solved by Jesus Christ. He conquers death in his friends, in his friend. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on and when he dies, he's buried and he rises again. And we see Jesus, he dies on the cross and he dies the death of a fool. Criminals died on crosses. Foolish people who lived foolish lives died like that. And just like Solomon said, Jesus, the wisest man ever, he died just like a fool did. But that wasn't the end of the story. He rose again. He conquered death. There's more to it than that. And so as Christians, we believe that, and that should lift us out of our despair. Now, all of this should be incredibly practical because truth is always practical. I mean, it's practical, number one, in our relationships with God. You know, maybe you've come in and you came with a friend or even came by yourself today and you're saying, man, I just, I want to know God. I feel like there's more to life than the life that I've been living. I feel like my conscience is just crying out all the time that something's wrong because of the way that I'm living and I want to turn over a new leaf. I want to live differently. I would encourage you to live differently if that's what your conscience is saying. But even living differently is not the ultimate answer. Jesus is. So if you're here and you're saying, I want that ultimate life, I want that meaning and purpose, I want that future, I want everlasting life, you will never find it in your behavior. You'll never find what you're after either in the party and you'll never find it just in the good moralistic life. You'll only find it in Christ. So if you're here and you are, are looking to absolve all the sins in your life, the way that you do it is not by doing good things to make up for it. It's by trusting in Jesus. By trusting that he died for you, he was buried, and he rose again. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the one that we're all about. Maybe you're here and you've been moral and you're good, and you're even here just as an act of being a good person, being a good citizen and doing what's right. I'd say if that's what you're trusting, if you're trusting in your own morality, your own goodness for your life, turn and trust in Jesus. I'm not saying start being bad. I'm saying trust Christ. Trust Christ and him alone is the savior because you can't save yourself with your own morality. The gospel says the way we come to God is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, not by anything that we do. So it's practical when it comes to how we actually have that relationship with God. This is practical because it's an antidote to bitterness. If we look at life just under the sun like Solomon did, it's easy to start to get bitter because bad people do bad things and they prosper. I, mean, I remember I was a salesman when I was in college, a telemarketer, which is probably a bad thing to begin with. But, uh, but there were people, and the more dishonest they were on the phones when they were calling, we were selling long-distance phone service for MCI, the more dishonest they were, the better they did. They prospered. And, and so I would see people making more money than me because they were willing to be slightly dishonest or really dishonest on the phone. And so we look at that, and it's like, you know, I'm trying to be good and honest, and, and I'm broke because of it. The wicked prosper, and I'm hurting because I'm trying to do right. And it's easy for bitterness to come up. 
Or you're raising your kids and it seems like something's going wrong with your kids. And here are these other people. They're not making investments in their kids. It seems like they don't even care about them. Their kids are coming out great and following Jesus. Yours are struggling along. And it's easy to get bitter and say, what What is going on? Life is so unfair. You make all these investments and you say with Solomon, why have I been so very wise? It's easy to get bitter at God. It's easy to get bitter at the world around you. But if we believe that death is not the end, then that lifts that bitterness. If we believe that there's a resurrection and life keeps going after this life and there's a God who judges and a God who rewards, then that means that even though death comes in short circuits, whatever process we think is working in this world, there will be a day when there's real reaping and a God who sorts everything out. This is practical if you're at the place where you're just tired and you're ready to quit on the Christian life. Because it's too hard, it's too much of an investment, there's, there's a better life to live out there. Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now, if we just looked at life under the sun, we'd say that's not true. There are good people who die young. There are bad people who live a long life and make lots of money and seem like they've got everything. So how can you say that we reap what we sow? Because there's a resurrection. Because life doesn't end at death, and God will sort it all out. We will reap if we don't give up, so we don't have to be weary. And then all this is practical to make us missionaries. And we read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's just so sad. I mean, he's despairing of life. This rich king who has everything is saying, I don't know if I want to go on living. Well, his experience is the experience of nearly a million people within driving distance of us. Who are far from God. Now, most don't ask the hard questions that Solomon asked. Most don't keep exploring and pressing on life to figure out where, where real life and hope is. But all of them, if they did, would find the same sadness and despair and meaninglessness that Solomon had. And we know Jesus. We know the one who's the answer to that. We know the resurrection and the life. And so our call as Christians is to go out and preach that good news. Preach the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. Death looks like it's the end for everybody, but it wasn't the end for Jesus. He rose and he says, whoever believes in him, though he'll die, he'll live. You can have life. This process can be short-circuited. You don't have to live the way Solomon said life goes. If you're just living under the sun, there's more than just what's under the sun. Jesus came and reversed the whole curse that Solomon was observing. Solomon said the world's not fair. Foolish people and wise people all just die. Jesus came and said, I'm going to be not fair. If you've lived like a fool or if you've lived more relatively wise, you're going to have everlasting life if you trust in Christ. And he's going to spend eternity lavishing his grace on fools like us. No, that's not fair, but that's the right kind of not fair. That's grace. We didn't do anything to deserve God's favor. We didn't do anything to deserve his blessing. But because of his cross, because of what he purchased for us when he died for us, he's going to spend all of eternity lavishing his grace on us. And so that leaves us in a place of hope. Not in a place where nothing goes wrong. Not in a place where sometimes we don't take our eyes off Christ and, and just look at the world around us and start to despair. But it leaves us in a place where we've got a future, We've got an eternity, and more than any of this, we've got a Savior. Everything that's sad comes, becomes untrue in Jesus, and that's great news. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Well, Christians, 
it's easy for us to be in that place of bitterness and despair and hopelessness. And fairly often we're there because of where we fixed our eyes. We fixed them here on this world and the results that we can get in this world for, for our behavior. And Christ has called us to lift our eyes beyond it. He's called us to live for something different. He's called us to be different. He's called us to, to look to Christ. So if you're in that place of despair or bitterness, turn from it and trust in Jesus. Trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Even as a Christian, trust in that again so that you can believe that you're headed toward a resurrection. So you can believe that death is not the end, this life is not the end, the results here are not the only results that there are. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, I want you to know that the Bible does teach that we're sinful and we're cut off from him. The reality is we have what this world has to offer, and then we die. And if we die apart from Christ, we pay for our sins, we spend eternity apart from him because God is a God of justice, and we'll be on the wrong end of that apart from Jesus. But the good news is that he came and he died for us. He died, he was buried, and he rose again, so you can turn from your sin and turn from your unbelief and turn to Jesus and trust in his salvation and his forgiveness. You can turn to his cross and trust in him, and he promises that whoever believes in him, though you'll die someday, you'll live. So turn and trust in him. And whether you're turning from the life of the frat party or you're turning from a moral life where you feel like you've saved yourself and don't need a savior in Jesus, turn from all of it and trust in Christ. Cry out to him. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's not a matter of praying special words to him, but it's a matter of deeply in your heart turning from sin and unbelief and false saviors, trusting in Christ and crying out, and he promises he'll save you, he'll receive you. Whatever words you want to say, God, I recognize my sinfulness. Recognize that I'm apart from you, I'm broken. I recognize that this world can't satisfy me. So I'm turning from sin and unbelief, and Jesus, I'm turning to you. And you alone is the only way of salvation. Jesus, come save me and rescue me. And he, he promises that of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. And that's great news. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for, for speaking the hard words to us. Thanks for even crushing some of our dreams so that we can have the right dreams in you. Thanks for warning us about the road that we're on, that it doesn't offer what we're after. Jesus, thank you for coming and being the life and being the resurrection, being the one who short-circuits this whole mess of a world that we live in. Jesus, we worship you for that. You are a great and mighty Savior. You're a great and mighty God. And so we lift you up. We want you to be glorified in our hearts. We want you to make us missionaries who go out with this great news that even though we will all die, there is one who rose and that we can rise too. So Lord, make us the missionaries who spread that joy. Lord, you've given us the one true answer. Lord, help us to spread it to our whole region so that you can be glorified and your name can be made great here. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.